endless amount of topics, certainly on Iran, and many other topics with uh, Scott Gillespie and John Rash is playing politics, Star Tribune, this partnership with WCC Radio. John, let me let me start with you. What is your broadest overview of what has taken place the last six days? That one can look at this episodically in terms of what has happened with the strike with the Iranian major general and then Iran's response just about 48 hours or so after that. But instead of the 48 hours, it's it's important to look at 40 years of this enmity between Iran and the United States. And unlike hardly any other adversary in American history, the lingering bad blood continues to impact foreign policy today. And yet again, there's another opportunity for not only an off-ramp that perhaps both Tehran and Washington took today, but maybe even the beginnings of relooking of some kind of rapprochement, some kind of relook at this relationship, because it's so extraordinarily toxic for both nations, for the region, and indeed for the world. That's an optimistic viewpoint on a very yeah. pessimistic situation. And then finally, it's remarkable how quickly the narrative changed, because once the strike against the Iranian major general concurred, it took all the heat off the theocracy running Iran, and they were on the run, not just from their own people in the street, but throngs of Iraqis who wanted to push the Iranian presence back over the border. It bought a lot of time and renewed legitimacy for the Iranian government, and that might be the biggest strategic error in this latest round of of challenge between the two nations. Scott, I was just having this conversation before you two gentlemen joined, and and I said, is it realistic to think that the president and his team could decide when other administrations had the opportunity and didn't do it to kill Suleimani for all the reasons that this is a vicious terrorist, but also the number two person in Iran, Um, and that this would only be Iran's response where ballistic missiles, a dozen, but by signaling through Iraq that we are aware. Is that really going to be Iran's only response for the death of Soleimani and what he meant to that country? I mean, I hope so, but do you think that's realistic? I think we should all hope so. Uh, I don't think it's realistic. I think that Iran, either directly or through its proxies, is likely to do more than what it did yesterday. And that's the fear, and that's the kind of chaos that that this could create, and that's the kind of chaos that the previous administrations decided to try to avoid and reason why they didn't go after them when they could have. So, I, I, you know, and it could come this week, next month, next year. We don't know. Yeah. That's the thing, John. So on that part, as somebody like yourself who studied countries and history and these dynamics, the same thing. Do you think knowing – and again, it's sometimes it's, it's these, uh, these governments that can be very oppressive in some ways. It's the messages they're putting out for their people compared to what their actions are. But when this was the response and what Khomeini saying – in the last 10 hours or so, this is nowhere near enough. Do you think it's realistic to think for the next couple of weeks that it is going to settle back to even, even if it's a minimum where we were last Wednesday and there was more talk, but there wasn't a military response? 
I concur with both of you that it's unrealistic and it would break the longstanding pattern of the, how the theocracy operates within the region. That being said, they certainly realize the challenges that they face from their own domestic constituency because they have not been able to deliver any kind of economic benefit from the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, since the United States exited it. Now, many people would argue that that pushed Iran into much riskier regional behavior, which precipitated this crisis and has made things less safe for the United States and its allies, both within the Mideast and certainly within Europe. And I think that's one aspect of this that cannot be forgotten as well, that any kind of resulting military action which would create a refugee wave similar to 2015 that destabilized European politics since then is something that most administrations clearly would want to avoid. And ironically, as Europe faces potentially blowback from this, wants to stay within the deal because they're party to it as well. President Trump, when he was speaking from the White House today, talked about a much more robust role for NATO. This, of course, is an alliance that at one point he has called obsolete, that he has Mm -hmm. called on the carpet in many ways. And the reason that one doesn't do that so publicly and and so caustically is you may want to rely on them at some point. It can't be forgotten that the U.S. is the only nation to ever invoke Article 5, the Collective Defense Treaty, and it sounds like he wants to look for a, a much more vigorous NATO role right now. So I think that'll be a significant next portion of this story that has to be examined in terms of our alliances throughout the world. Scott, I want to pick up on because John raises good points. Can can you do both? Can you be the president today who said, I want more of the countries in Europe to get out of this agreement, right? Just get out of this agreement. But I also want you, you same folks, get out of the agreement, who are also part of NATO, to get more involved where at this point right now, you disagree with the president on both of those points. Well, but but he does have some leverage in that those European countries ultimately want peace. Yeah. And that so because of the power that we have, the military might that the United States has, that that will, I think, um, bring about more NATO uh, interest. And I think to some extent he can ask, and when he asks, they'll probably come. Uh, I, I just don't uh, – I don't think they can uh, – not be involved uh, when, when destabilization is so dangerous for them. John, we also have a, a, an apparatus in many areas of this administration which has been hollowed out. We don't have a director of DNI. We don't have an official head of Homeland Security. We don't have various undersecretaries. And you obviously have an enormous amount of power for Mike Pompeo. I mean, there's, there's just no doubt at all. Mike Pompeo is the second most important person in this administration. And, you know, even when the decision was made uh, last uh, Thursday, the folks who kept coming down to Mar-a-Lago were Pompeo and Esper. It, you didn't have the tip like CIA wasn't there. National Security folks weren't there. It is just a very different approach how this administration deals with with arriving at this decision, let alone the decisions themselves. Well, not only do you correctly point out that they don't have a director of national intelligence and many other key figures in any administration, especially three-plus years in, those that remain have often been denigrated by the president of the United States in terms of their assessment of the role of Russia in the 2016 election 
and some of the fallout and the ongoing impeachment issue in terms of the administration's approach to Ukraine. So it's very difficult for those who remain to have that kind of strong voice that is needed in every administration. That's partly why Secretary Pompeo is so ascendant, and in a way, especially with his military credentials, having gone to West Point and and you know been part of the military himself, that he, in effect, almost acts not only as Secretary of State, but <coughs> at least a shadow Secretary of Defense in terms of, of yeah. giving the president military policy here. It was why it was so consequential, not just for the future of the United States Senate, that he decided not to run as a Kansan and, and go back home and, and try to reclaim a, claim a Senate seat there. He, of course, used to be a representative from that state, but it's consequential in terms of the administration as well. And I think going back quickly to a point about Europe here, I think that it's notable that all of those nations really want this deal to continue, as does Russia, as does China. Right before we came on air, I spoke with Robert Malley, who, you, who was the lead White House negotiator for the Iran deal, the JCPOA. Yeah. He's now the president of the International Crisis Group. And he, in effect, said, by its very nature, it's a negotiation. You're never going to get everything that you want. And when you have all those entities agree, including Iran, it may not be perfect, but it had a far longer time span in terms of Iran's ability to break out with nuclear fissile material and uranium enrichment limits than currently may be observed now that the U.S. has exited and now that this boiled over into such a crisis this week. Let's do this. Let's pause right here. I want to start with uh, Scott when we come back, because I want to hear what uh, both gentlemen, Scott Gillespie and John Rash from the Tribune, what they think about how the Democrats have responded to this on the uh, the War Powers Act, on uh, the backing up of uh, an imminent threat, and in particular how the presidential candidates have reacted to it. There are multiple levels to this. We're going to talk a little more politics, too, because Mike Bloomberg is in the state today. What kind of factor is he Moving forward, because uh, money, he sees uh, Dan Cook. He's you know what he's spending right now. He's spending John Rash money. Easily, that's what that's yeah. what Mike Bloomberg is spending right now. It's one forty four on WCCO. Playing politics. It's at one forty six. All right, Scott Gillespie. Uh, we now have the response by the Iranian government. While the last couple of days, Democrats have, for very valid reasons, is okay. Can, what can you show us about the imminent threat, and what about the War Powers Resolution? Those two pursuits, did any of that change last night? Well, uh, what can you show us uh, evolved some here in, in just the last few hours with the briefings with House members and yep. and to be followed with the Senate. I've seen one House member so far appear on uh, network television, a Democrat who, of course, said we heard nothing that, that, that made it uh, uh, imperative for us to strike Soleimani at this time. Yep. So um, – you know, meanwhile, you've got Trump and his surrogates uh, painting the uh, the Democrats all as uh, as Iranian sympathizers, yep. and uh, that's that's the political calculation they're making there. Nikki Haley um, yesterday said Democrats are mourning right the death, and then she walked it back a little bit. Yeah, a little Not bit, much. but they seem to really have that message uh, uh, down, and they're yep. going to spread that. And we're going to we heard it from uh, uh, all of his supporters yesterday. Uh, and into this, into this morning, you know, the Democratic candidates uh, have to be careful, and they are to varying degrees with saying it wasn't uh, an appropriate uh, uh, move by the by the U.S. to take out Soleimani. Um, they obviously have to acknowledge, and most have, that this is a this was a terrible, uh, bad actor. 
who was con- you know con- convicted to uh, uh, to do more to us in the future. But they're right to say, what was the evidence? What do you have? And so far, we really haven't seen that. Although Trump has said that uh, he orchestrated the December 31 attacks on the embassy and that he there were imminent new attacks planned. We we don't know any more than that. So, um, you know, the other thing that you're hearing from Democrats is, so what's the strategy? Yep. And um, and we haven't heard that strategy articulated. Don't know that we will necessarily. And that's a line of uh, criticism of Trump that only works if things worsen from here. Uh, John, I want this question for both of you, but you, you go first. Um, two of the top contenders. First, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, to a lot of people, because of his decades in the Senate, including on foreign relations, his eight years as a vice president, when we have an international crisis like this, is going to get a bump. And he has been, I think he's been, I think he's walked that line better than a lot of the candidates. Here's where Joe Biden is. I should be questioned, though. A couple times in the last week, he has been wandering around and what he said about the Iraq war when he clearly voted for it. But now he knows where his party's at right now. And also on Osama bin Laden, when Joe Biden was very public in saying, you know, he counseled the president, wait, more information. When he's asked that he said, no, I never did that. So him first, and then Elizabeth Warren. I saw Elizabeth Warren on with Jake Tapper, and and again just kept calling Suleimani government official, which he is, right? But he's also a terrorist, and and she's on the View the other day. And I'm not the biggest fan of Meghan McCain, but it shouldn't take Elizabeth Warren four times to answer that he's a terrorist. So just maybe how those two still perceived as two of the top three candidates, how they're dealing with some of what they think are their strengths and some of their weaknesses. President's most prominent role is commander in chief. And that's the first test that any candidate has to pass. And Joe Biden, however, ineffectual at times regarding the Iraq question, which he should be called upon and he should come clean and say, I voted for it in retrospect. I wish I wouldn't have, or I think that I got it wrong that eventually is a position that Secretary Clinton got to as an example. But I think that— Took her a while also. It certainly did. But in terms of his credibility threshold as a potential commander-in-chief, that's something with most voters. He clearly has passed. His timing has not been great this campaign, but he sure picked his spot to have a well-planned-out address on foreign policy and national security that he gave earlier on this week. And I think that most voters look at him as— an experienced hand who's been able to look at these issues for decades and have a pretty good sense of it, particularly in his role as vice president. But not to be forgotten, he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee at at one point. And I think that regarding Senator Warren, she has to be much more specific, much more forceful. But so do so many of the other candidates. And this is where, uh, again, she may be losing out in terms of the progressive wing of the party to Senator Sanders because – those who have been deeply committed to Bernie Sanders for the last four-plus years realize that he's the modern-day equivalent, and to some degree, of George McGovern in terms of come home, America, and, and, and bring you know the forces home. He did vote against the Iraq war, as an example, in mm-hmm. sharp contrast to Vice yep. President Biden and so many other senators at the time. And so he has more long-term credibility on that issue, and it's yet again another example of why— 
despite her meteoric rise during the summer, that Elizabeth Warren has continually fallen down in most public opinion polls, especially relative to the two top contenders right now, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. Scott, let me let me stay with that topic and frame it this way. John's right on when you look at polling on Biden. But if it gets to a race and the president's going to have an extraordinary amount of money and Joe Biden, they can show when, when the, the target is going to be on President Trump and, and how he just doesn't tell the truth. Mm-hmm. They're going to say, well, look at Joe Biden. Here's Joe Biden and what he really said. No, here's what Joe Biden really said. Wait, here's what he said on bin Laden. No, here's what he said. So on that one, and also Elizabeth Warren, she also in the same Tapper interview said, well, I just wonder if this is tied to impeachment, which a lot of people are whispering mm-hmm. around. But most of us aren't the number two, number three, or number one contender to be the next president of the United States. And Tapper kept saying, well, do you believe that? No, I'm just raising the question. If you're going to put that out there, I think you better say, I believe that. Mm-hmm. I have some proof. And by the way, you have to be willing to take on part of your base and say, this guy was an awful person that I worry about if they're ready. Are they ready to play chess? But don't downplay who this person was. Right. Uh, that's absolutely right. And and on on Biden, uh, it, you know, he, he he's, he's got a, a deep experience. He's trying to run to some extent on his deep experience. The problem with that is, as you point out, there's a track record there. There are votes there. There's, you know, serving an administration and either saying you were part of the decision or saying you weren't part of the decision. He's got to he's got to make that clear. So he'll get picked apart on that. Uh, He already is. But if he's the nominee, even more so. Uh, Warren, uh, you know, harder to pin down, uh, yet also. Has a record, has clips like you just described, yeah. where there's inconsistencies, and um, and you do have to wonder uh, uh, whether foreign policy is a, a serious uh, part of her portfolio or not. John, Mike Bloomberg is in the state of Minnesota today. Mike Bloomberg has had to do a farm. I normally don't think of Mike Bloomberg in farms, but I do think of Mike Bloomberg in a lot of ads right now. I mean, the amount of money he's well, he's like last time I saw it was like 160 million or so. I mean, already. And he's skipping Iowa. He's skipping New Hampshire. He's skipping South Carolina. He's skipping Nevada. This is all about Super Tuesday, which we're in that mix. What do you think? This is a state that on the caucus side went Bernie Sanders last time over Hillary Clinton. But we're also a state where we've had Amy Klobuchar. We've had Tim Pawlenty. We've had Jesse Ventura. We've had... Paul Wellstone, we've had Rudy Boschwitz. We're, I mean, we will go to extremes. We will go to center right, center left. Where do you think Bloomberg fits into Minnesota? Because at that point, for sure, he's still in the race. Well, you're right. He's all about Super Tuesday. He's also about the Super Bowl. He's bought a spot in the yep. Super Bowl to run nationally. And that's reflective of his strategy in that he's going to try to rack up delegates in really deep, delegate-rich states, New York, California, Illinois, and others that don't have a – home state politician running in the race. Within Minnesota here, you certainly have a center-centrist lane, and Senator Klobuchar has positioned herself not just on the presidential trail, but also as a senator here, as a sensible centrist. She'll try to, if she's still in the race, keep that going, as well as Vice President Biden surely still will be in the race. So I don't think he's going to be able to get as much traction here. I think so much of what he does is truly for a national audience. So even though he's coming to a Minnesota farm, yeah. this isn't like 
shaking hands down on the farm in Iowa or right. whatever, but it's to show a national audience that he's not just an urban business person and big city New York mayor kind of candidate, that he's going to cover the gamut and he's going to use it to make an economic point about those who feel left behind by President Trump's trade war, as an example. So I think so much of it is just to project nationally. And Scott, also, um, we see that the president now probably was thinking about this all along, but the fact that Bloomberg bought the television ad mm-hmm. during the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. the president is going to uh, spend some television time. You know, for, for a number of years, we would watch the Super Bowl and we would see the president interview. Some people are going to think, well, Fox has it this year, okay, mm-hmm. Fox television. Mm-hmm. So does that mean it's Sean Hannity? Is that Tucker? I I guess I'd be shocked. He, I don't, he hasn't – did he do it maybe the first year? I don't remember if he so, did the last couple of years. So. But is he going to sit down with Chris Wallace? Yes. Is he going to sit down with Brett Baer? And take advantage of that enormous audience, you know, because he, he does answer questions, but he rarely sits down where a person for 10 minutes, one on one, can do that parry back and forth and try to really be specific. Yeah, especially if it's Chris Wallace. I don't think he's going to want to do that. Yeah. But to your point, would he sit down with Hannity? Sure. I don't so. think I, I just I don't know. If Fox is going to say, Sean, you are great for us, but we're not. I mean, President would do the whole game with mm-hmm. Hannity, right? That's right. You know, do, do play-by-play or color. <laughs> exactly. Either one. Yeah. John, what do you think? How, how's that going to play out? I concur with both of you. I don't think that he's going to do it. The one thing he never lacks is media attention. If he wants the camera, if he wants the stage, literally at his rallies, that's the way he wants to speak, uninterrupted, yep. with resounding applause and red-clad constituents behind him. He is not going to want to sit down with a someone from the Fox newsroom, yeah. Brett Baer or Chris Wallace, as an example, and the Fox News organization, which often su- suffers under blistering criticism of how they go about their journalism, is not going to want to put Sean Hannity there, no. who's a close ally of the president, as its interlocutor, as its interviewer yeah. during the Super Bowl there. So my sense is he'll skip it. You'll see a commercial from him. Yeah. And for all you know, he'll have a rally right after the game. So Wouldn't we'll be a bad idea. Right yeah. after the Vikings win. Yes. And and listen, and the selfless nature, all of us in this room are willing to head to Fort Lauderdale Absolutely. and cover. Absolutely true. Self, selfless. That's what we're willing to do. <laughs> That's what journalists do. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's Thanks, right. guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank Playing you. politics, if you picked up on it, you can check it out. Star Tribune, StarTribune.com. You can also go to Radio.com. Radio.com anytime and rewind. It's 24-hour availability. Go back to the start of this conversation. Do it today. Radio.com. 